Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here, even though I am nervous. It's true. It just, it always happens. Um, But why don't we open in a word of prayer? Dear God, thank you for who you are and that you are the same God that we read about in these stories and that we know that uh, you are with us today. And I pray that you are uh, with all of us as we, as we go out into this week um, and help us to, to learn a little something from, from your word today. Your name, amen. So I am indeed speaking on the book of Ezra, uh, chapters six and seven, but not only the book of Ezra. So we'll kind of see how this goes. Uh, so chapter, the way that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, actually, they're very interconnected, are, uh, are laid out is by theme. So the first theme is the building of the temple, the return from exile and the building of the temple. The second theme is the purification of the people. And then the third theme uh, found in Nehemiah is the building of the wall. So Ezra chapter six uh, is the culmination of the rebuilding of the temple, the first act of Ezra. And then Ezra chapter seven is the beginning of the second act. So uh, just keep that in mind when we discuss this. So I'll be covering chapters six and seven. So ending and then beginning. But in order to adequately tell the story of Ezra chapter six, uh, we need to do a little recap. So we're going to actually start in Ezra chapter four. So right at the beginning of Ezra chapter four, this is basically once the, the altar has already been completed and there's a big celebration and the neighbors start to take notice and they seek to aid the people Uh, with their temple building project. But when they are rebuffed, they seek to do everything the opposite. So their aid was certainly not offered in good faith. And from the very beginning of rebuilding the temple, there is opposition. It says that uh, even though Cyrus had made this wonderful decree that uh, was all about supporting them and making sure that this temple got rebuilt, uh, even Cyrus, king of kings, as he describes himself, cannot overcome the power of a bad bureaucracy, and there are bribes and corruption, and they are opposed at every turn. And then, so that's, that's where we are at the, in chapter four. So I'm going to read a little bit from Ezra chapter four, uh, verse 23 and 24. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we've got Cyrus who kicks this thing off. And then we have Artaxerxes who completely stops it because the neighbors write to him. Uh, I believe, as Joey said last week, they started a letter writing campaign and that ended in the construction completely stopping. So there was no more building and it halted for about 15 years. So there was a good 15 years where they, these people had come back to Jerusalem, back to their homeland and yet were stymied with their purpose. They had an idea, they knew what they were supposed to be doing, and they could not do it for 15 years until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So once this king had been replaced, Artaxerxes, then something else starts to happen. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began rebuilding the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So from the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, they begin to rebuild the temple. The Jewish people had abandoned this project for 15 years. And then these prophets come to them and they speak to them. And suddenly they're back at it, even amidst all of this opposition. So what what did they actually say to them? I have to know. I could not continue reading through this book without taking a diversion. And so I diverted into Haggai and Zechariah. And I, for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to look at the book of Haggai because Zechariah certainly deserves its own sermon series. It's a very complicated book, lots of, uh, lots of different prophecies. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai now. So we're stepping away from Ezra for a second into Haggai chapter one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, I always think this kind of thing is very interesting. When God specifically is admitting to the problem, or he is specifically addressing the problem that they are saying. It's it's just such a human thing. It's something that always communicates to me how God really does hear what we are saying, and he really does see our problems. God does not show up on the scene to these people and say, what's going on? Where's my temple? Why has it not been built? He can hear what they are saying. He does not agree, as as we will soon see, but he certainly hears what they are saying, what they are saying, and he recognizes that. He hears them. He actively listens by repeating back what they are saying to him. But he does offer a rebuttal in verse three. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So these people are saying that it is not the time to build the house of the Lord. Now, who are these people? It's not really clear. Uh, It could be the outside opposers who are saying, no, 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 this is not the time. You don't have permission from the king. You can't build this house. We're not going to supply you with anything. It is not the time. It could be internal opposition. People who are saying, well, look at the circumstances. This is clearly not the time. We were told we would have support. We do not have support. There's nothing we can do. This is not the time. But God asks a question. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The people have abandoned the temple project and the opposers have succeeded in their mission. They are no longer interested in building the temple and they are in fact putting it off and focusing on other things. Verse five, now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns a wage does so to put them into a bag with holes. These people are unfulfilled. They have turned their attention from God onto other things. Now, I want to note here, none of these things are wrong. None of these things are sinful activities. This is not 
like other books of prophecy where the people are turning away from God and turning to idols or, you know, oppressing the poor or just turning their backs on God in general to pursue other things, to pursue other gods, to pursue sinful activities. This is just the cares of the world overwhelming the people of Israel. This is them just trying to live their lives as best they can. But in doing so, they have forgotten their true purpose. In verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So that's a little important point there because the whole idea originally coming from Cyrus, coming from the king of kings, as he calls himself, is that everybody will support them as they build this house. Everybody will be giving them wood, giving them stone, giving them gold, silver, giving them everything that they need. But God's not going to wait for these people to get their act together. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. He doesn't need all of this stuff. He just wants these people to do what he asked them to do. Just go up to the hills, get some wood, build this house. That's what I want you to do. So go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God wants them to move forward. Consider your ways, he says. Refocus on your true purpose, that of bringing God glory by rebuilding his temple. They will not find fulfillment anywhere else. They are not able to get their lives in order because this central thing is missing. They're a wheel, you know, without a hub in the middle. There's nothing that they can do to get this right. God has a plan and he wants them to be a part of it. And certainly it was true then and it is true now. And we should all consider our ways and see if we are putting God at the center of our lives. It is not wrong to do these other things. And in fact, I would say God expects us to do these things. He expects us to eat, to drink, to associate with other people, to live our lives, to work. But even as we do those things, we should not lose sight of our true purpose. That is to bring glory to God, to spread his word, and to do his work. Now let's continue in Haggai. In an unusual turn for a prophetic book, the people actually listen. You don't really find that much in these prophetic books. Usually they feel like they're shouting into the void, but we have a turn here. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. 
the Lord reminds them of a solid truth. I am with you. When God asks us to do something, he never asks us to do it alone. This promise was given to another Joshua previously, and it was given to this Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and it is given to us today. God is with us, so we do not need to fear to go about his business. To the Jewish people, this meant that they did not need to fear for their lives and livelihoods as they did God's work. Even though they did not yet have a temple, God was with them. And so the Lord stirred up the spirits of this remnant and empowered them to continue in his work. So now we're going to get back into Ezra and see what happens next. So still in Ezra chapter five, though, someday we'll get to where I was actually asked to talk about. Uh, Ezra chapter five, verse three. At the same time, Tatane, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? So here comes the intimidation. The old king is gone, but his cronies are still in power. And the people that do not want them to build this temple still don't want them to build this temple. But they are asked, so they are asking, okay, who gave you this authority? What's going on here? We certainly haven't heard any updates you guys aren't supposed to be building this. Who is in charge here? Who is doing this thing? We're going to report them to the king and, oh, we'll see what happens then. But in verse five, it says, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. I just think that's a very cool phrase. The eye of their God was on them. God was seeing what they were doing. And importantly, just notice what it says here. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. Because of what was going on, God being so clearly involved, they could not stop them. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. Something about what they were doing now had changed. Previously, it said that they were able to stop them, you know, with power and force. Using the letter of the king, Artaxerxes, they said, you stop. You're done. And they did. They stopped. They were done for 15 years. But now something has changed. And I would posit that it is the prophecy coming from Haggai and Zechariah, the reminder that God is with them that has changed. And now they cannot be stopped. And so they don't stop. And these people cannot stop them. They have an unconquerable conviction in what they are doing. And though Tatane opposes them, he cannot stand in their way. So, of course, he does write this letter to Darius, and we actually finally get to chapter 6. So chapter 6, verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the providence of Media, a scroll was found on which it was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels from the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of that temple, which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. 
you shall put them in the house of God. So Darius rediscovers. An investigation is opened, and Darius rediscovers the decree that gave the Jewish people the authority and even the duty to rebuild the temple. So note again that this is a restorative act. What was once removed from the temple is being placed back within it. This is a symbol of the restoration of God's people. As the kings seek to rebuild the temple, so God seeks to rebuild his people. And we continue. After Darius finds this decree, he acts. Now, therefore, Tatanay, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put a hand out to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. So Darius reinstates Cyrus's decree. And then he goes one step further because Darius, unlike Cyrus, will not be forgotten. So anybody that comes through and changes or otherwise, you know, neglects this edict is to be punished severely and is to be, as it says, to be impaled from a stake with their own house and their house is to be destroyed. So Darius is very serious about this going forward. And it's important to note also that when he says it's going to be paid from the royal treasury, he says the tribute from the surrounding area, from the province that it is in. So here goes Tatane, the governor of that province, and you know the other governors and the surrounding neighbors who have been opposing this build. And uh, they write this letter, and the letter comes back and says, well, guess what? Stay away. And also, I want you to pay for it. You're going to have to pay for this temple. So did not quite work out, I think, the way that they had hoped. Note also that Darius is seeking favor from God by doing this. He says, pray for the life of the king and his sons. God is working tremendously in this kingdom. And that's, to me, that is probably the most remarkable thing about the book of Ezra in general, is just how many of these kings are so involved in this temple that you can't imagine that they would really care about, but they do because God is working here and the Israelites have been improving the nation that they go into. So let's continue. Uh, Verse 13, chapter six. Then according to the words sent by Darius, the king, Tatsune, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius, the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Ida. 
They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication in this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God, a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So I read all that and I'm reading all this because I think there are very important details in all of these things. And with the word from Darius, tremendous support pours into Israel for this project. Now, remember, at the word of Cyrus, they were able to complete the altar and they had a celebration from there, but they could not build the temple because as soon as they started to try to do so, even before a letter was written to Artaxerxes to completely stop it, they were opposed. There was corruption, there was bribes to advisors, and that stopped them from really making any progress. But here, they are actually making tremendous progress, and they actually do finish, finally, rebuilding this temple. And a great sacrifice sacrifice is offered. And as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 goats are offered. And that's an important detail because it emphasizes the symbolic unity of the people, where once there were two kingdoms divided, there is now only one remnant, only one people of God. The 12 tribes have been reunited. It's been a tough road, certainly, for those 12 tribes, but they are back now together. And I want to just mention here a little bit of a history there is that, of course, the 12 tribes were separated into the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, The southern kingdom, of course, being carried off into Babylon. The northern kingdom destroyed by the Assyrians, never to return. The Assyrians destroyed them. That's important for later. On verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So here is the crowning moment of the first act of Ezra, of rebuilding the temple. The temple has finally been rebuilt. Everything is coming together. Everything has finally worked out. And we have the celebration of Passover. For the first time in many, many years, Israel is able to celebrate and remember God's delivering might from Egypt in their own land and at their own temple. It is an incredibly meaningful experience, and they are filled with joy at the prospect of it. God has truly turned their mourning into dancing, and even their ancient enemy, the Assyrians, have participated in this great work of God. But there is more. Not only are the returned exiles rejoicing, but also many people who have joined them in this land. It is a great testament to the simple and yet powerful witness of simply doing God's work. 
the fire of God's spirit that ignited the Israelites has spread to the surrounding people, and they put off their uncleanness and worship the Lord. It's truly incredible. So let's recap. For 15 years after they were forced to stop, and even before that, when they were adamantly opposed and could make little to no progress, the Lord's house lay untouched and ruined. I imagine it as, you know, within the center of the city and there's everything around it. The people were struggling, unfulfilled, despondent. But then God, through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, refocused his people and gave them hope, reminding them of their divine calling and gave them the reassurance that he was with them. Renewed, the Jewish people began to rebuild the temple alone and in defiance of those who opposed them. This kicked off an investigation, which led to an outpouring of incredible support that surely allowed the temple to be completed in record time. All the while, as the Israelites diligently worked with the eye of their God upon them, their witness spread to those around them, culminating in a tremendous celebration of God's providence and joy. It's really a remarkable story. I don't think Ezra gets enough credit for it. And the lesson that I think we can take away from this story is crystal clear. Make God the center of your life and his blessings will follow. It may not be easy, and it certainly wasn't easy for the Israelites, but it will ultimately lead to great things in this life or in the next. I think personally, we all need to do this. Corporately, we need to do this. As a church, as God's people, we need to do this. We need to consider our ways, as it says in Haggai. And we, need, and we need to make sure that Christ is at the center of our lives. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33. Of course, that's probably not the first time that you've heard this verse, but it's definitely something that we always need to hear. We always need to be reminded to consider our ways. Is Christ at the center? Is God at the center of our lives, of this church, of what we are doing, what we are focusing on? It's an incredible testament to what is done. And I, I prayed earlier specifically that, you know, we may remember that this God is our God. This God is the same God. And this is the sort of thing that we can expect from him. Not necessarily, you know, making everything easy not making everything simple to do, but certainly being with us when he asks us to do things and causing those things to grow and to flourish and to bring great glory to him. So that's the end of chapter six. It ends with a great party from Israel and the people of the surrounding lands who have come to worship God and a reminder that even the ancient enemy, Assyria, has turned around because of what God has done. Because these people stepped out in faith, they listened to the prophets who said, do what God asked. Don't forget, he is always with you. And they do this thing, which kicks off that investigation, which leads to this great, incredible story. This great, incredible temple that has been built by the hand of God. So now Ezra chapter seven. Uh, Ezra is, I'll just put this right here, Ezra is a confusing book because the names of the emperors are not enumerated. They don't, they don't have numbers attached to them, so it can be very confusing what's going on. But basically, uh, if you read it chronologically, 
Ezra shows up here. He does not actually show up earlier in the story. He shows up here in chapter seven, 57 years later. In verse one, now after this, 57 years later, in the reign of Artaxerxes, wait, I thought he was a different Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of, son of, son of, son of Aaron, the chief priest. So I say that to highlight Ezra has a pedigree as a priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. Skipping down to verse nine. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That is what Ezra has set out to do. And I'm not going to get too much into what he actually ends up doing, which I will say is basically what is described here, uh, because that's all for later. That's all for future sermons next week. Uh, But that is what he has set out to do for the good hand of his God is on him. In uh, verse 25 of chapter seven, and you, Ezra, this is King Artaxerxes saying to him, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So this is Ezra's mission, to bring the law of Moses to the people. They had some idea, certainly. In chapter six, we saw that they organized the priests and the Levites uh, according to the book of Moses. But Ezra, a scribe, a very talented scribe, somebody who really knows what's going on with the law, is tasked once again by this foreign king to bring that to the people. He is on a mission to restore this Mosaic law. Like I said, not actually going to get into that because we're just talking about this introduction. And that begins the next act of Ezra, the purifying of the people. That's for next week. Uh, chapter, uh, verse 27. This is Ezra's response to what is going on. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. The hand of the Lord my God was on me. Ezra has been commissioned to bring the law of Moses to Jerusalem, as well as to appoint judges and bring sacrifices. There is a tremendous outpouring of support from Artaxerxes. But of course, as we just read, this is not the first time that this has happened, that the Jewish people have been supported by the Persians. And when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem and arrives saying, the good hand of my God has brought me here, I'm sure that the people answered him the exact same thing. Indeed, the good hand of our God has brought us here. The good hand of our God has built this temple for us, has provided everything we need because we turned from these other things and focused on him. So I think as we go into this week, let's all remember that the hand of our God is on us and he is always with us. 
and let us seek to put him at the center of our lives. Thank you. Now let's close in prayer. God, thank you again for who you are and that you are steadfast and that your faithfulness is eternal and that you love us and that you've given us the opportunity to work with you, to engage in your work. It is a true privilege that we get to do such a thing. So God, help us as we, as we struggle to put you in the center of our lives, as so many things try to get in the way of that. Help us to refocus, to consider our ways, and to remember that you are always with us and to seek to do your work. In your name, amen.